Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio. Brought to you by OnPay, Atlanta's new standard in payroll. Now, here's your host. Lee Cantor here, another episode of Atlanta Business Radio, and these are very favorite ones. These are the GSU ENI Radio Special Editions, and today is going to be a good one. Today we have Seth Radman, and he is with Infinite Giving. He was recently a judge at the Main Street event um, over at the GSU uh, football stadium. Welcome, Seth. Hey, thanks for having me here. Well, I'm so excited to learn. First of all, uh, tell us about uh, Infinite Giving. How are you serving folks? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about Infinite Giving. So I've partnered up with Karen Houghton. She was previously the vice president at Atlanta Tech Village. And we have built a beautiful online platform that helps nonprofits invest reserve funds, create endowments, and accept stock and crypto donations. So a lot of the things that they're already doing that are kind of archaic with big banks and PDF forms, we've created a platform to help automate fully online. So now this is um, nonprofits of any size or do they have to have a certain kind of supply of money to be used in this manner for it to make sense? We serve nonprofits of any size. Most of our customers so far are less than $20 million in assets under management, usually because once you're bigger than that, typically you have your own people internally that help you manage stuff. So probably the more small to medium-sized nonprofits. But we also do serve some very large ones with our crypto and stock donation tools to make things easier for them. Now, what's kind of the pain they're having where infinite giving solves the problem for them? Yeah, there's really there's really two big pain points. And really the, the background for this is when COVID happened, you know, we went on lockdown. A lot of nonprofits either got more emergency relief funding than they've ever gotten before or unfortunately, they had to shut down and close up shop because they just couldn't meet ends meet. And so the net result is a lot of nonprofits have an excess of cash, at least if they're still around. And so as we've seen in the past couple of years, just based on the way the stock market has moved and crypto, and especially with inflation rate where it is, a lot of nonprofits are looking to invest their reserve funds or create endowments to create longer term sustainable growth. The challenge with that is Working with big banks can be really tough for nonprofits. They don't meet the greed index. They're not going to grow as quickly as other for-profit companies. And since they're not-for-profit and tax-exempt, there's higher risk for things like money laundering. And so the risk level is just a lot higher for traditional banks, and it's a very poor experience with high fees. So we've created a platform that essentially, instead of you having to work with manual PDFs on a four- to six-week process to open an account with another big bank, for us, it takes about just 10 minutes online. Um, so that's that's one way we help people with investing their funds in low-risk, low-cost ETFs and index funds. The other way is through alternate asset donations. You know, probably, I don't know the exact number, but it's got to be at least 80 or 90% of the world's wealth is held in stock, not cash. Yet nonprofits continually are primarily asking donors for cash. And so what we do is we make it a lot easier for nonprofits to donate stock to nonprofits, sorry, for donors to donate stock to nonprofits which is the most tax advantageous way to give. Right now, it's very clunky to do that. Usually you have to fill out a PDF form, you have to sign it, you have to email it to your financial advisor, then they do stuff. It's a pain. Again, we've changed that so that it's a two-minute form online and we connect with your bank and give you the instructions for you to transfer that over. So essentially helping nonprofits manage everything except for cash that they interact with, that's the big problem that we're trying to solve. 
Now, is it a difficult conversation to have with leaders of nonprofits to make this kind of a change? Because it seems kind of large, at least they could perceive it as being this massive change. That's a really great question. What we've found so far is a lot of executive director, a lot of executive directors and CFOs absolutely love this. It's the product that they wish they had years ago. They can't wait to get on board. I think the bigger challenge is typically navigating the politics within your board to get this approved, that some nonprofits require board approval to move forward with this. And usually from what we found, there's usually one or two people on the board who have a background in finance and would think that it'd be better for them to personally manage the funds, which is a pretty big conflict of interest. So I think just navigating the politics around that is a big deal. But honestly, the problem is so big for a lot of these nonprofit leaders, it's causing them such a headache to be missing out with inflation the way it is and to have to call a traditional wealth advisor every time they want to know their balance or get a giant stack of PDF reports just to see how they're doing that they want in. I think it's a matter of using the right tactics to persuade the rest of the leadership and the organization that it's the right move for them. Now, in your free time, when you're not leading this organization, you invest a lot of time mentoring and serving the startup ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the lessons you've learned through going through so many startups, including Infinite Giving, um, and how you kind of uh, relate that to what a startup founder maybe who is going through it for, for the first time? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I really enjoy mentoring and coaching other founders. I had a lot of fantastic mentors for me, and I went through the CreateX program at Georgia Tech, which was fantastic. Now I'm a coach for that program, as well as an advisor for some startups at Georgia State and others across the Southeast. I think the probably biggest lesson that, or biggest piece of advice that I really try to drill into a lot of the founders I work with is just spend more time with your customer. A lot of founders jump straight into building the product because that's the fun, exciting thing to do. And and I get it. I'm a software engineer myself. I really like to build. It's fun to hunker yourself down and build, build, build. But the reality is a lot of people are building things that unfortunately no one wants. And so it's really important to be talking to your customer a lot more than you'd expect. And that's one of the biggest failures that I've had. I've I've built over 40 iPhone apps and probably only three or four of them have had more than a thousand downloads because I built what I thought were cool ideas without actually talking to customers and making sure that it was solving a real problem for them. Now, as that relates to infinite giving, was this something that when you and Karen and your team were kind of brainstorming, you're like, oh, this is a no brainer. They're going to just, you know, come pounding down the door. This solves it's so obvious. And then when you got into the weeds of this and you realize there's always that one kind of rogue person that doesn't want to give up control or has their own you know, agenda, and it's a little trickier navigating those politics than maybe how you pictured it on the whiteboard. Yeah, it's definitely, we've definitely had some curveballs and things have been different than how we expected. Karen, my co-founder and our CEO, you know, she used to run a nonprofit. She has that background. She really understands what it's like to get burnt out in this endless fundraising cycle. And so I think our mission, you know, of helping nonprofits has stayed the same how we do that has shifted a little bit. I don't think you know it's difficult to anticipate what the market's going to do with the market being all over the place where it is right now. Some folks are more hesitant to investing, even though that arguably could be one of the best times while prices are low. So we've we've shifted a little bit towards some of our asset giving tools, helping with stock donation and endowments. But no doubt, you know, we did not know things right off the bat. But there is one thing we did that I highly recommend for a lot of entrepreneurs which is before we wrote a single line of code, 
we did a hundred customer interviews. We talked with a hundred nonprofit leaders and we tried to understand, hey, how are you currently managing your funds? What are you doing for stock donations, crypto donations? And we heard the same thing from a lot of them, which is, oh man, we we know we should be investing. We just haven't gotten around to it because we're we're not quite sure where to start. We're not quite sure how to even go about crypto donations, but we know we should be because all the research says that the average crypto donation size is much bigger than cash or stock. So we we definitely validated the problem talking to a lot of customers. But once we built the product, it's an experiment. There's a lot of unknown variables that come into play, and we've definitely had to pivot and adjust as we get feedback from our customers. Now, how do you take that information and um, and then relate it to pricing? How do you know you know, you interview these hundred people who are probably in some way or another an ideal prospect, some of them at least. How do you know, hey, that's worth a dollar, that's worth a hundred dollars, that's worth, a, you know, a million dollars? How do you kind of know the sweet spot or, or kind of can project somewhat of a sweet spot of pricing so you can begin offering it uh, to the market? Pricing is one of those things that is is really tough. I think there's really only one way to truly do pricing right, which is to test it, right? You have to test lots of different pricing with lots of different customers. For us, for good or for bad, because we're in a regulated industry and as an investment advisor, there's certain things that we have to engrave into our product a little more rigidly than you would with a more dynamic pricing model for other products. So for us, for our advisory services, we have a fixed fee based on your balance for asset center management that we're registered with SEC and we have to stick to that. We do have a SaaS product that is a monthly fee that, frankly, we've just experimented with, with different price points. We're on a call with a prospect. We're going through everything. They're sold on the product. And then we get to the end when we're talking about the fee and the cost. And we're looking at their emotional reaction. We're looking at our close rates. We're looking at the emails that we get after these calls to see if they want to move forward, if they don't, and what their pricing threshold is. But most of the time, frankly, what we do is we ask them, hey, what's your budget for technology like this to improve sustainability and increase your donations? I think for consumer products, it's maybe a little bit of a taboo subject to say, hey, how much would you pay for this? You know, Humans will tell you what they think they'd pay, but you really don't know for sure until they convert. But for organizations, it's usually a little more cut and dry, not always, but a little more where there's typically a budget specifically for things like this. And if you ask people, at least that's a good starting point. But from my experience, the only way to truly know pricing is to start with your, you know, what you think is your best gut at first and experiment, do split tests and see what the data shows. Now, in your experience uh, going through several startups, several exits, can you talk about kind of, and maybe this is a bit of a taboo subject, maybe not so much today, but definitely probably when you started, it was the kind of the mental health of a founder. You know, at one point, there was just, you know, you're living 24-7 and you're proud of 24-7, 365, hustle, hustle, hustle. And today that seems to be a little less, at least overt, at least. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because it's not talked about enough. I was one of those people with my first couple of startups, my first app company, Plutonium Apps, and my, my next startup, Crescendo. I was one of those people working 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And the truth is that can only last you so long, right? You have to neglect so many other aspects of your life, your physical health, your you know, relationships with other people, eating, sleeping. You know, These are all things that you should be doing during the day. And I went through a period of time where I just was... 
I kind of lost myself to the grind, just working as much as I could every day to move things forward. And it broke me where essentially I had to take about a month off and I almost quit just because I was falling apart. And now I'm definitely one of those people who am in it for the long run that I'm trying to build not only sustainable business, but also a sustainable lifestyle and a sustainable schedule for myself to be able to pursue this because I don't want to be doing this just for another year or two. I'd like I'd like to be doing this ideally for decades to building products that people love. And so, yeah, now my schedule is is much better that I rarely work more than eight hours a day. Sometimes it's even less than that if I have a time block where I'm very focused. And I found that if I'm really dedicating a couple hours to doing one thing with no distractions, no notifications, no email, no Slack, that I can get a lot done in a short period of time. So I've I've really started focusing more on doing less, but making sure that I'm doing the important things and I'm doing them better. And also, you know, having the right balance on my day to spend time with my wife, with my cat, to be getting exercise and going rock climbing or playing saxophone and having some balance so that I can take breaks as needed and be able to sustain this for a longer period of time. Now, do you have any uh, tip or uh, advice for the listener regarding prioritizing? Because that's at the heart of this. You have to have a true north. You have to have uh, an idea of what is that most important thing, not the most urgent thing, but the most important thing. Um, how do you kind of, how'd you solve that riddle? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. You really have to think about what's most important in life. And then also with your business, what's going to move things forward. And so for me, I mean, people, friends, family are at the top of everything that it really doesn't matter what's going on in my business. If something comes up with a really close friend or family member, I'm going to drop everything and and they're going to come first. Um, But in terms of the business, there's an exercise that I like to do that I think it's something Warren Buffett or some other successful person did that I've copied and really enjoyed. You know, we all have to-do lists and we probably have a ton of things on these to-do lists. One thing that I like to do is I'll you know, create the top 10 things on my mind that I really want to get done today. Um, And then I'll cross out what I think are the five least important things so that there's only five remaining. And then I'll cross out two more. So there's only three. And then I'll circle one item, what I believe is the most important thing. The key thing is not only to focus on doing that one most important thing, but to explicitly not do any of the other things on that list. There's so many distractions, so many easy wins that I can check off that list. I really try to structure each day by focusing on what is the single one most important thing that I can do to move my business forward. And usually there's multiple things, but man, having that kind of laser-like focus is really difficult. It takes a lot of discipline because there's so many other shiny, catchy things that sometimes could be more fun or more exciting. But I really found that being consistent with the daily, sometimes mundane tasks, like sending cold emails that move your business forward, that's, that's really the key to making progress. Now, you recently were a judge at that Main Street event uh, for GSU. Can you talk about your experience there and the caliber of uh, founder that is coming out of that program? Man, the event at GSU was fantastic. The The founders were so well-prepared. The pitches were fantastic. As a judge, we, you know, I, I really struggled to evaluate who I thought should be first, second, and third place because they were all so fantastic. I think we're seeing incredible ideas coming out of universities with with uh, college students that are just very creative and have a lot of ambition and a lot of persistence to move forward with things that they're passionate about. So the the startups there I think are fantastic. I think there's an important thing to note, which is, you know, just statistically from what I've seen from these university accelerator programs, 
I don't think we expect that all of them are going to continue working on their startup, you know, a few years from now. Some are going to decide to move on to other ideas. Some of them will fail. Some of them will succeed. But I really have no doubt that the experience of building their company, going out to get customers, building the product, pitching in front of a, an audience, learning how to present yourself, regardless of the path that these young founders take, I think it's going to be an incredible skill set that will help them if they're at a bigger company leading innovation or leading change from within, if they do decide to do their own thing and are working on a smaller team or startup or really whatever path they th- whatever path they take i i know for me entrepreneurship has really been personal development disguised as professional development that obviously i'm working to build a business working to get customers but i think by doing startups i've learned more about myself and how i can grow as as a person and i'm i've no doubt that the founders at gsu will be doing that too cuz they were just off the chart in terms of talent probably one of the most impressive university accelerator pitches that I've seen in quite a long time. And uh, I love the fact that it's not it's not just tech only. It's um everything's yeah. probably tech enabled, but um tech's part of it obviously, but it's not just um you know kind of the same software uh app uh startups that you see in other events. Yeah, I mean, I think nowadays people think every startup has to be, you know, a, a SaaS mobile app or web app that can scale to be a billion dollar company. But man, there's a lot of great service businesses or great lifestyle businesses that will never get beyond a million, five million, ten million, or even a hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but can be fantastic businesses. So I think it's important not to fit all startups into one bucket of being, you know, the typical SaaS or tech product that's going to scale and grow quickly. There's a lot of great service businesses out there and tech enabled services that do a lot of good and are quite fulfilling and adventurous for the founders that run them. Right. And as you mentioned that those skills are transferable no matter what you decide to do for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And I've seen this a lot through CradeX, through GSU. There's a lot of founders who decide that either the startup lifestyle isn't for them or they're not in love with the startup they do. And what do they do next? They go to lead you know, in strong leadership positions at other companies. They go on to do another startup. They go and find a different career path that is exciting. But I have yet to find a founder who says the trajectory of their life wasn't changed through building a startup because it just opens up this whole new path of opportunity and growth in such a short period of time that I haven't really found in lots of other places. Well, um, Seth, thank you so much for sharing your story today. If, if folks want to, want to learn more about Infinite Giving, what is the website there? Yeah, you can find us at infinitegiving.com or you can hit me up on LinkedIn, send me a message. We'll be happy to chat. And uh, if you go to just a LinkedIn, Seth Radman, R-A-D-M-A-N, they can find you on LinkedIn. Yep. You'll find me with the saxophone next to my name. Good stuff. Well, thank you again for sharing your story. You're doing such important work uh, for the community, for your company, and for those uh, kids out there that you're inspiring uh, to pursue entrepreneurship. I think it's super important and we appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and chat and share a little more of my story. All right. This is Lee Cantor. We'll see you all next time on Atlanta Business Radio's GSU ENI radio show.